Welcome to Finding Medina, Episode 4, Jose Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara. I'm Brandon Seal. Just before Father Miguel Hidalgo was captured in March of 1811, a man of modest means from the Rio Grande Valley named Jose Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara came to him, offering, quote, my services, my hacienda, and my life, end quote, for the cause of Mexican independence. Father Hidalgo had heard of the 36-year-old Gutierrez de Lara's work as a propagandist of revolution back in his home state of Tamaulipas, and so trusted the hardy frontiersman immediately, appointing him his emissary to the United States. Gutierrez de Lara departed within days, narrowly escaping the fate that befell Hidalgo. Gutierrez de Lara was descended from one of the founding families of Tamaulipas. His father had served prominently as a city councilman in his hometown of Revilla, a town later known as Guerrero. One of his brothers was a priest, suggesting that the family had the means to educate their children to some degree, though Gutierrez de Lara would insist throughout his life that his learning came from the, quote, school of practical experience, end quote, la escuela de la experiencia práctica. Indeed, there is an old but hard-to-confirm tradition that Gutierrez de Lara earned at least part of his living as a blacksmith. Either way, Gutierrez de Lara had taken up Hidalgo's grito early on and become one of the most vocal proponents of Mexican independence in his state. After receiving news of Father Hidalgo's capture soon after he had left his company, Gutierrez de Lara traveled to San Antonio. There, he made contact with the reliably Republican Arrocha and Menchaca families. Gutierrez de Lara tasked them with recruiting a new revolutionary army, while he continued on to the United States in search of resources and more volunteers. Gutierrez de Lara continued across the Sabine River, stopping only long enough to begin recruitment efforts among the Native American tribes he encountered along the way, including perhaps the Tonkawas, Caddo's, and others. Once in Louisiana, Gutierrez de Lara quickly converted to his cause the young, idealistic relatives of some quite powerful American politicians there, including James Biddle Wilkinson, son of one of the first American governors of Louisiana, and James Gaines, the double first cousin of a later commanding general of the Louisiana Territory. The younger Gaines may have even joined Gutierrez de Lara for part of his journey back to the United States. Despite having lost his written commission from Father Hidalgo, and despite Father Hidalgo's movement having been ostensibly crushed, when Gutierrez de Lara arrived in Washington, D.C., he secured meetings with Secretary of State James Monroe and President James Madison, making him, in historian Julia Garrett's words, quote, the first ambassador from the Mexican people to the United States, end quote. Such was the power of Gutierrez de Lara's charisma and his messaging that he won from the American diplomatic corps their admiration and sincere support, though disappointingly, he won very little in terms of actual resources from them. Recall that this is late 1811, and Americans were about to thrust themselves into a war with their old colonial masters. So Gutierrez de Lara continued on to Philadelphia. There, he met and recruited a like-minded Cuban-born Spaniard named José Álvarez de Toledo, who impressed him as a man of, quote, great talents, end quote. Toledo, however, 
preferred the world of newspaper editorials and political intrigue to frontline combat. And so when Gutierrez de Lara returned to Texas the next spring, he left Toledo behind to continue lobbying the American government for support. By April of 1812, Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara was back on the Louisiana-Texas border, where his efforts from the previous year were showing much greater success than his visit to Washington, D.C. had. José Félix Menchaca had assembled maybe 150 Tejano volunteers, and Wilkinson and Gaines had cobbled together 150 or so more American volunteers under a 24-year-old former U.S. Army Lieutenant, Augustus McGee. Gutierrez de Lara's outreach efforts to Native American tribes had paid dividends as well, as a few dozen East Texas Indians lined up in his ranks, which could now, with a little imagination perhaps, be called an army. On August 8, 1812, José Félix Menchaca guided Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara's army, the self-styled Republican Army of the North, across the Sabine River and into Texas. Sadly, José Félix Menchaca quickly fell into royalist hands and would spend the rest of his life in a Chihuahua jail cell. The Republican Army of the North, however, marched on and grew stronger each day. We left off in the last episode having settled in on a pretty fair approximation of Royalist General Arredondo's position and line of march on the morning of the Battle of Medina. But where was the other army, the Republican Army of the North, in all this? The three most detailed and contemporary primary Republican accounts of the Battle of Medina all come from American volunteers. The first was an anonymous participant in the battle, who reported his experience in a Lexington, Kentucky newspaper in the months afterward. The second was Henry Adams Bullard, a 24-year-old relative of Yes, Those Adamses, serving on the staff of the Republican Commander-in-Chief. And the third was James Biddle Wilkinson, son of that first American governor of Louisiana we just mentioned. All three of these we'll post to our Rivard Report webpage, and we'll use them now to try to piece together the Republican Army's movements. So the night before the battle, the anonymous Lexington reporter places the principal Republican camp somewhere south of modern-day Stinson Airport and just north of the Medina River. On the morning of the battle, and here I'm going to quote Henry Adams Bullard, quote, The Republican Army crossed this stream, by which he is almost certainly referring to the Medina River, though he doesn't say it, and occupied such a position as to watch the only two fords by which San Antonio could be approached, end quote, referring presumably to both the Laredo Road to the east and the Lower Presidio Road on the west. Here's Henry Adams Bullard again, quote, The army was drawn out in order of battle, crossing the road in the center, the artillery on each side, and a corps of cavalry and friendly Indians on each wing concealed in the thick of woods. In front of the line was a small prairie, and such was the position of the troops that the enemy might approach within rifle shot without detecting their presence, end quote. The anonymous Lexington reporter supplies a little more detail, quote, We formed the battle line, leaving a clear forest to our backs. On our right was located a large hill, at whose back there was an impenetrable forest that entirely protected us from being flanked on that side. On our left, there was another large hill, 
more considerable and difficult than the one on the right. In front, we had a plain extending for a mile, which was then followed by a thick encinal in an extremely sandy soil through which passed the road to Laredo. Our vanguard was located forward in this dense encinal with orders to avoid all attack and to retire back to our formation without being seen when the enemy approached it. This because, as I have already said, the general's idea was to surprise the enemy on his march and upon his exit from the Encinal. End quote. Now let's bring in James Biddle Wilkinson just to round it out. So here he is, slightly abridged. Quote, we formed our line of battle and had reason to believe that we should see the enemy in an hour or two. Soon after, a stranger, who appeared from his dress an officer, rode to within 60 to 70 yards of our line, apparently without seeing them. When he reined in his horse, wheeled, and went off at full speed, six or eight shots were fired at him. End quote. So for those of you who went back and actually read Royalist General Joaquin de Arredondo's battle account, that last little episode should sound familiar, because Arredondo tells us the same story. In fact, he even gives us the cavalry officer's name, 2nd Lieutenant Francisco Lopez. The subsequent events all sound familiar as well. The Republicans, realizing that the element of surprise has been lost, began to pursue the Royalist scout force in front of them, which we know to be under the command of Colonels Elizondo and Zambrano. The Republicans then followed after the Royalists, according to Wilkinson, for two miles or so through the, quote, deep sand, end quote, and the, quote, thick, scrubby oak growth of the Encinal de Medina, end quote. The Republicans then grew tired, thirsty. Disagreement as to what to do next then broke out amongst the Republican officers, with the commander-in-chief wanting to fall back and regroup, while the others wanted to continue the pursuit. The rank and file of the Republican army, it seems, decided the issue for them. Quote, it being ascertained that there was water just ahead, we moved on to it, end quote, Wilkinson tells us. So the Republican Army of the North continued on, the Anglo-American infantrymen on foot in the center, the Tejano and Native American cavalry marching along the flanks. With each step forward, their confidence grew. Word went down the line that the Royalists were retreating. Some of the men began to push on even more aggressively, while still others went back to help drag the cannons through the all-consuming sand. The Republicans were getting strung out, however, confused now, losing contact with each other. Wilkinson, quote, In this manner, we approached the enemy. In this manner, we went into action. We found the enemy well posted, as they received us warmly, as in their power. End quote. These first three Republican accounts all agree rather nicely with each other in almost every major detail, and they also agree with Royalist General Arredondo's account. Enter the William McLean account to complicate our lives. Written 48 years after the battle in 1861, William McLean injects a complicating detail. All the other Republican accounts seem to place the Republican camp the night before the battle just north of the Medina River. McLean, however, claims that the Republicans, quote, encamped for the night four or five miles southwest of the Medina River at a small stream of water, end quote, and that Arredondo and the Royalists were camped, quote, about six miles from the Americans, end quote. Aside from being many miles forward of where the other accounts say the Republicans camped, there's another problem with McLean's version of events. 
The first stream, four or five miles southwest of the Medina River, isn't on the Laredo Road. It's actually squarely on the lower Presidio Road. So why would the Republican Army set up an ambush on a different road than the road that they knew the Royalists were on? Check out the map that we've posted to the Rivard Report to see the problem with this interpretation. But maybe instead of dwelling on inconsistencies and mileages and distances from battle accounts written down a half century after the fact, we should focus on what the different primary accounts have in common. Because William McLean actually describes the topography of the ambush site in very similar terms to the other accounts we've just reviewed, quote, with a post oak grove in rear and an opening in front, end quote. And he seems to agree with all the accounts, including Arredondo's, that the Republicans' position was, quote, most admirable, end quote, for their ambush. If we could positively identify the Republican ambush site from topographical details alone, the other inconsistencies between the accounts wouldn't really matter, and we could confirm the Republican Army's location on the morning of the battle. And that's the goal here. So, summarizing the points of agreement, or at least the points of non-contradiction, from the principal Republican primary accounts of the battle, here's what we're looking for. The ambush site, ideally, should be a few miles south of the Medina River, on the Laredo Road, assuming we know which one that is, probably six or so miles north of the Royalist campsite, maybe with hills on either side, with some kind of wooded feature to the rear, an open plain to the south, and the Encinal de Medina just beyond that. So how are we going to find that? Google Earth and LiDAR are powerful tools, but they're no match for the human eye. And the only way for a human eye to get perspective on an area as large and as thickly wooded as the Encinal de Medina was to see it from the air. In the summer of 1812, Texas Royalist Governor Manuel Salcedo knew that trouble was brewing across the Sabine River. Louisiana was a hub of political intrigue in these years, with agents from all over the Americas and Europe scheming and spying on one another to effect revolutions and revisions to the world's maps. And rumors of Gutierrez de Lara's efforts in Louisiana had become too loud to ignore. Governor Salcedo decided that he had to do something. So he sent a few dozen Spanish regulars under the command of the Reverend Lieutenant Colonel Juan Manuel Zambrano, the royalist hero of the counter-revolution against the Casas Revolt in Episode 2. And he called out the local militia in Nacogdoches to keep an eye on the Texas-Louisiana border. An attempted incursion by 300 Americans in October the year prior had been repulsed with only the slightest show of force. So Salcedo might have hoped that Zambrano's mere presence alone would be enough to deter the Republicans. But Gutierrez de Lara wasn't leading a run-of-the-mill cattle-rustling expedition. Gutierrez de Lara was leading a movement. When Colonel Zambrano arrived in Nacogdoches, he must have sensed this. He resolved to bring the issue to a head immediately by pushing into Louisiana. He requested safe conduct for his troop from American officials, ostensibly to deliver a shipment of wool to Louisiana, but also probably to make a bit of a show of force in the wild borderland regions separating the two nations. Gutierrez de Lara and his little army, however, learned of Zambrano's plans. Perversely, 
It may have been these plans that finally drew the Republican Army of the North across the Sabine River. Though rich in recruits, the Republican Army was decidedly poor in terms of supplies, and they knew that Zambrano was well-provisioned. As we mentioned earlier, on August 8, 1812, the Republican Army of the North crossed the Sabine River into Texas. Colonel Zambrano got word of their movements and marched out to meet them. Sometime around August 18, 1812, Zambrano's scouts tracked the Republicans to a swamp just west of the Sabine and tried to sneak up on them in camp. Republican pickets detected their approach, however, and fired on them, sounding the alarm and rousing their comrades in arms. The Republicans drew up their lines and quickly took the offensive, a tactic that frontiersmen from both sides of the border consistently favored. Zambrano was surprised, perhaps, by the intensity of their opposition, and, frankly, undermined by the lack of commitment on the part of his militiamen to his cause. The Royalist force soon disintegrated, and Zambrano retreated with his regulars all the way to San Antonio. Gutierrez de Lara and the Republican Army of the North found themselves doubly strengthened by their victory over the Royalists near Nacogdoches. First, they had captured large quantities of supplies, which they were able to put to good use or trade for hard cash in Louisiana. And second, most of Zambrano's militia ended up staying behind and joining up with Gutierrez de Lara's army. East Texas now came out in full support of the Republicans and filled their ranks, which soon swelled to 600 men. Gutierrez de Lara's long year in the wilderness was at an end, and the results spoke for themselves. The Republican Army of the North marched onward now, deeper into Texas, in Gutierrez de Lara's words, quote, united, well-armed, and determined to besiege hell itself, end quote. On the next episode of Finding Medina. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out the webpage associated with this episode on rivardreport.com. And please don't forget to leave your comments or to weigh in with your own theories or ideas. The feedback so far has been phenomenal, and I'm very, very grateful to everyone who has taken the time to reach out and to send me information, which a lot of you have. Also, go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review of this series. Because if everyone who listened to this series left a review, it would launch these important historical events to the top of the charts. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend George Gaitan for letting us use his music on this series. You can find out more about him at georgegaitan.tripod.com. A special thanks to my SWCA research buddies, Crystal Allgood, Rob Lakowitz, and Zachary Overfield, as well as to San Antonio City archaeologist Kay Hines. Thanks to Brian Stauffer, our unofficial old Spanish document transcriber, to Samantha Alanis, our cartographer-in-chief, to Cesar Gutierrez, our unofficial Archivo General de la Nación researcher, and to UTSA's Dean of Libraries, Dean Hendricks, our unofficial all-other-document finder. And for more information about our podcast and other projects, please check out www.brandonseal.com. <laughs>